0: Um, Okay, hang on. Before we go, is Rachel's head half cut off on all of your screens? Yes. Can can you angle your camera, Rachel? That's better. better? Thank you. Okay. I think it's probably because of the way we have the phones, like the way we're displaying it that way. But anyway, now I can see your face, so that's good. (laughs)
1: listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge Podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Brie. <laughs> and I'm Rachel. <laughs>
2: that was creepy. I'm Brie. Okay, you can put that one
1: in. You never know what you're gonna get, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and this episode is Storytime with Sarah. Woo! Yay! These episodes take so much research, um, but I'm not really complaining because I also get to learn you some pretty cool you stories. It. You
2: love researching.
1: It's like being back in school and having mm-hmm. to write a research paper, but then having to like present it and make sure that everyone's going to also enjoy it. So there's that. But the story that I covered last time on Gertrude Simon was so cool. Uh, And if you haven't listened to that one, you should go back and listen to it. It's a really good story. And not just because I told it. It's actually really good. So this time, there's a story of courage, perseverance, resilience, and faith. And this is the story of Rosa J. Young, or the first Rosa, as we like to call her in our Lutheran circles. She had a huge impact on the Lutheran church in the Black Belt of Alabama in the early 1900s, uh, when racism post-war was still very much alive and well. The effects of the Emancipation and Reconstruction were still being figured out. And there's so many details to her story that I am not going to be able to tell you in the next, hopefully, like 30 minutes. (laughs) We're going to try to get through this. So I I highly recommend, if you're interested in this story, uh, to read her book, Light in the Dark Belt. The story of Rosa J Young, as told by herself. Uh, she wrote this book about her own life, and there is a lot in there that I just won't be able to tell you because there's so much. Also, if you go to lcms.org/thefirstrosa, there's a documentary. There are more details. There are links to the Encyclopedia of Alabama, which has another, which has further stories and further information. And if you like to like go down rabbit holes on the internet, which is one of my favorite pastimes, uh, there's links. To so many things on the Encyclopedia of Alabama page. So while you're reading her story, you can like link out to all these other pages and, and really get into the, the societal context and, and uh, more of the background of her story. So that being said, Rosa Jinzi Young was born in Rosebud, Wilcox County, Alabama on May 14th, 1890. We share a birthday month that made me really happy. Yes. She was the fourth of 10 children born to Grant and Nancy Young, and her dad was an African-American Episcopal minister and supported Rosa's future plans for education and teaching, which at that point, they probably had no idea what awesome things she was going to going to be doing eventually. Wilcox County, just for a little background, is in the southwestern part of Alabama, part of the Black Belt, which is named for its dark rich soils it's part of the larger southern black belt which stretches from maryland to texas and this area in alabama was eventually a hotbed for the civil rights movement um, events that happened near the end of Rosa young's influential life in Rosa's life cotton was the king in this area and many people's livelihoods depended on it and this fact later determines actually a large part of her story but i'll get to that in a few minutes at the time when Rosa was born, the black belt was still an area struggling with immense poverty and powerlessness and prejudice. And in her book, Rosa explains in depth about the environment where these black children were growing up and how urgent the need was for proper preaching of God's word and solid education. There were a lot of churches, uh, but few of them were very well attended and Preaching was full of things not really found in the Bible. So from her book, she says, They had no knowledge of the Bible. My readers can scarcely imagine this state of affairs, for their children know so much about Jesus, but many colored children have never heard of Jesus. They had never heard the story of Jesus' passion, his innocent suffering and death for the sins of the world. Just think of it. They had never heard about the scourging, the mockery, the crucifixion of Jesus. No one had been sufficiently interested in the welfare of their souls to tell them about the true God, that Jesus is the son of God and their savior. Right there in the land of Bibles, thousands of little black children had never seen a happy day. They were growing up like weeds and bushes, children without hope, without God. The process for becoming a church member was not founded in God's Word. The understanding of biblical teaching was uh, very warped. People would be uh, quote-unquote mourners seeking religion, and they would go without food or hygiene or friends for a, a period of time searching for religion, and you would have to have some spiritual experience in order to, quote, get religion. She says, mourners are those who are seeking religion, and during the period of seeking, they were instructed to refrain from taking food and drink, combing their hair, bathing, changing their clothes, or greeting their friends. Instead, they must bear a sad countenance and remain alone. Sometimes a person occupying a seat on the mourner's bench would prostrate himself on the floor such a person was said to have fallen under conviction. In such case, the service would continue through the night if necessary, and all who could remain were asked to do so in order to assist the mourner in attaining his goal to get religion. Rosa herself found religion, quote unquote, at one point to become a church member. She was baptized and received into membership in 1900, and this was into the African American Episcopal Church. Hymns or songs in those uh, in those churches in those days were generally old plantation songs, not the rich hymnody that Rosa herself would help introduce uh, many years down the road. Rosa wanted to be a teacher from the time she was very little. She excelled in the, the very little schooling she did receive. She taught her siblings uh, from that point from the time she had had schooling. After she was baptized into the church, she was set on going to Sunday school herself and teaching the other children the Bible, prayer became a significant part of her life. And in her book, this goes, uh, this is a theme throughout her entire book that anything that happened in her life, she always prayed about it. She prayed about everything. Once she completed her basic schooling through the sixth grade, she had a strong desire to continue higher education and prayed fervently for it. One day, uh, when she was picking cotton in the fields, a white man who was friends of the family, Captain J.C. Harper, told her she should continue her schooling. And this was significant enough that it is in both her book and the documentary, and she says in her book, one day while I was picking cotton in one of Mr. Harper's cotton patches, a little ahead of the other pickers, singing to myself the following little plantation song, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you may have all the world, give me Jesus. Mr. Harper came riding along on a big red saddle horse. Looking down upon me, he said, Rosa, your people ought to educate you. They sure ought to give you an education. You are teaching these other children how to work. You teach them in their books at night too, don't you? I answered, yes, sir. Then he wrote away saying something to himself, which I did not understand. When evening came, I went home and told my parents what Mr. Harper had said. Soon after this, it became the common no- common talk among the various relatives that I should be sent to high school. Hmm. From that point, her family decided that she should go to high school, and she enrolled in Payne University, which is an African-American Episcopal school in Selma, Alabama. When she first arrived there, the other students did not accept her, and they mocked her, and they laughed at her because she came from the country, and people from the country rarely visited the city. She was resilient through this, though, and she prayed for God's strength, and in due time, she did make friends with others. During her time off from school, she would pick cotton for Mr. Harper to earn money for clothing and books and train fare to Selma in order to return to school. She encountered hardships with over her time at school, including new teachers who challenged the students academically and really terrible housing situations in her boarding homes. But she also had great joys, including excelling at her studies, uh, winning prizes at academic contests, and she was made editor of the school newspaper. And after her four years of study, she was valedictorian of her graduating class in 1909. Her valedictorian address, which is uh, written in full in her biography, emphasizes a lifelong importance of service. And this is just the first paragraph from from that it says there rests upon mankind a moral obligation the highest law by which they are mutually bound to aid each other this is the highest conception of duty both to god and to man and this uh, this theme of service really follows her throughout the entirety of her life and and is the foundation for a lot of what she ends up doing she says, after graduation and returning to Rosebud, she was ready to serve. She passed her state examinations and received her teaching certificate shortly after graduation, and was determined to serve as many people as she could. But so at this time, uh, schooling in Alabama was um, was a really tricky thing. There were discriminatory laws on the books that greatly affected education for Black children. So if a colored school did not have classes for an academic year, the money from that school would be returned to the county and given to the white schools. Rosa could not let that happen as long as she had the power to influence it. So she spent the next several years teaching in various schools for African-American children across the state. Also, teachers at this time in African-American schools rarely passed the state examination. They, uh, they were made teachers for several reasons, but not always because they were actually qualified to be teachers. Sometimes they didn't know any more than the students that they were teaching. Mm-hmm. So this was also a huge factor uh, for Rosa to want to uh, be the best teacher that she could and really be able to serve these children. She says, I was resolved to render some service to my race by teaching for them each year in as many of these vacant schools as I could and thus help them retain the small public fund that had been set aside for the colored youth. So she traveled to as many counties as she could uh, and the list in the book of all the places that she traveled in just a few years is really remarkable uh, how many places she made it to. Um, She asked to hold school and churches for as many African American children as she could. She would go years without taking any days of vacation in order to teach as many children as possible. She was determined to travel as far as needed and as far as her income allowed her to reach as many children as possible. And during all of this, Rosa wanted to be the best teacher she could. So she was continuing her own education by taking correspondence courses, Mm. and she would take the state examination several more times a year just so she could be the best teacher possible for these children. I think her high standards are incredible. Mm. It's pretty cool. Yes. Yes. During all of these years after her graduation, Rosa had the dream of building a proper school building where children could go to school more than the three to four months they were getting at this time because she was traveling to so many places throughout the year. Uh kids wouldn't have more than just a few months of schooling at a time. So by the time they would go back to school, they would forget a lot of the things that they had learned. Mm. So she wanted to build a school uh, where the kids would get a much longer period of education mm. uh, in order to really further them in their knowledge. She had such great compassion for the people in her community who didn't know God's word, whose poverty was heartbreaking, whose morals were so low because of their lack of Christian education, and whose education was just not, it just wasn't there. Her most significant reason for wanting to teach children was uh, what the Bible truly said. She speaks of the corrupt churches and drunk pastors um, and really terrible situations in church families. And it was just, it was a bad influence on many people. Hmm. So in 1912, Rosa was determined to build a school for children, and after speaking with her family and friends and a lot of time spent in prayer, she decided it would be built back in Rosebud. After more time spent in prayer, she acquired the support of influential white people in Rosebud, and at that point, she drew up plans for the building, the curriculum, and the fundraising in order to open the school. She decided that the Bible training course would be a significant part of this schooling, along with the course of study from the Alabama Board of Education, of course, with all of the usual subjects, reading, writing, spelling, language, history, geography, arithmetic, physiology, and hygiene, and along with all of those courses, she also added sewing, cooking, and music for a well-rounded education. And this was an education that these kids weren't gonna get anywhere else in the state at this point. On July 8th, 1912, the Rosebud Literary and Industrial School was founded, and she wanted it to be ready to open in October, which was not a lot of time to build a school and get everything set up and have money to even open it. And she didn't have any money except her own $200 that she had saved uh, in order to put, put toward this school, so she drafted letters upon letters, and sent them out to gain support. She spent many, many long, hot days traveling to local towns to gain financial support from both white and black neighbors in order to have money to build the school. She herself negotiated for the supplies. She oversaw the construction herself, and she was absolutely determined that this school would be open for the children, and it did open in October 1912. It had 115 students in its Mm -hmm. first year, 215 in its second year. Incredible. With the support of surrounding communities, the Rosebud Literary and Industrial School was a success. But this is the point in the story that cotton comes back into play. So in 1914, just two years after it opened, the Mexican Bull Weevil inundated Wilcox County and devastated the region's economy. So this bull weevil would eat through... Cotton. uh, What year was that? 1914. Okay, Mm. fascinating. So, and if you're if you're really interested in history, go go research Mexican bull weevil um, and just the devastation that it it wreaked on so many places in the South. Because it wasn't just Alabama; it had been in other places uh, prior to that, and it finally Mm -hmm. made its way to Alabama in 1914. So it completely devastated the region's economy, and with families losing their credit system for their income, which they had been using since since emancipation since reconstruction had started uh, that was the credit system was how they had their income parents could not afford tuition or books for their children's education so the school suffered and also at this time in world history world war 1 had also broken out so the economy in general was quite grim people uh, were paying tuition in farm supplies because they didn't have money and then rosa had to go and sell those farm supplies in order to pay her staff mm. And in the spring of 1915, uh, by that point, most of the staff had resigned to find better paying jobs Hmm. because there was just no money. That summer, Rosa was forced to decide whether she would close the school for good or attempt to find an organization who would support the school. Hmm. So she wrote letter upon letter pleading for people to help to keep her school open. During this time, she constantly prayed for guidance. She did not want to close the school, but she also desperately needed help Hmm. from an outsider organization. The letter that she wrote to her Episcopal church body, uh, they said that they couldn't help her, and uh, they released her from her loyalty to them in order that she could find help elsewhere. And in her last attempt, she wrote a letter to Booker T. Washington at the Tuskegee Institute asking him for help um, to pass, maybe even to pass along names of people who might be willing to help her. So when Dr. Washington wrote back, he said he couldn't help, Uh, but suggested that she write to the Board of Colored Missions of the Lutheran Church. And this is where the Lutheran Church comes into play. He gave her the name of the Reverend Christopher F. Drews, chairman of the Board for Colored Missions. So the Lutheran Church had been doing uh, work, successful work in black missions already at this point, founding parochial schools in rural Louisiana in the 1880s and North Carolina in the 1890s. Although this was not without trial uh, and at great cost to these white missionaries who were going into the Deep South, the Ku Klux Klan was quite active and very unfriendly Mm. to these missionaries Mm -hmm. who were trying to spread the gospel in the South, which makes me have a lot of emotions. Yes. But anyway. Many emotions. Hot feels Many emotions about Mm. that. So Rosa wrote to Pastor Drews in October 1915, explaining her situation and pleading for help. Pastor Nils J. Baki responded that they wanted to know more about her situation. She wrote back saying she had the full support of the community, both white and black. Pastor Baki wanted to see her situation in person, so the Synodical Conference Mission Board, which was a segregated entity of the LCMS with a ministry to African Americans and to other non-whites, sent Pastor back, Pastor Baki lots of different AVALs, in December 1915 to see what could be done. Uh, at that time, the school board signed the school over to the Lutheran church after much prayer and singing, of course. Pastor Bakke held a Lutheran service in the community for the first time. And Rosa says, Now that was the first time we poor colored people had ever heard the preaching of the pure gospel. And when Pastor Baki had finished, he had a convinced audience. When Pastor Bakke returned to St. Louis to give a favorable report in January of 1916, the mission board voted to send him back to Alabama and to stay there until the work was organized. So he returned to Alabama in January 1916 and immediately began work. The secular school that Rosa had formed was transformed into a Christian school. He organized a Sunday school, an instructional class for baptism, and a confirmation class. He catechized the whole school and everyone learned Luther's small catechism and Lutheran hymns. And remember, this is still during World War One, So it's kind of really cool that these little kids were learning German Lutheran hymns and, you know, all of that. <laughs> despite that all the other stuff yeah, going despite on. Despite all of the stuff that was going on. Although that does come back to... Uh, to haunt them a little bit later. Oh, I'm sure it does. So his teaching reached beyond the students, too, uh, and he would instruct anyone who had a question for him about theology, and people were flocking to his sermons, some craving the pure gospel and others, of course, wanting to find things to criticize. But God's word prevailed, and on Palm Sunday in 1916, which was only a few months after he had arrived, 58 people were baptized and 70 mm. were confirmed. Mm. Rosa was the first, which uh. is cool. On Easter Sunday, a week later, the first Lutheran congregation in the Black Belt was organized and they named it Christ Lutheran. The original congregation was 70 confirmed members, 100 baptized members, and 22 voting members. Pastor Baki returned to St. Louis, the initial work being done, but after a disappointing bout with a new pastor who was not faithful, the missionary board sent Pastor Baki back to Alabama mm. and he stayed there until 1920. During those four years, however, word spread about the success and the high standard of this church and school. So Rosa and Pastor Baki visited numerous other sites across the state to start churches in both Wilcox and Dallas counties. The list is impressive and long of all of the places they visited and all of the churches that they planted. The news uh, was not Good, though. The Lutheran Church continued to be mocked and ridiculed and blamed for any mishaps that happened. And Rosa herself lost many friends due to her new relations with the Lutheran Church and went through a lot of really terrible things. And she says in her book, From polished preachers and professors down to rude stable boys, people heaped slander upon me and my work. Whenever I succeeded in getting up a class for confirmation or baptism, the enemies would unite their powers to break it up. They would go around and stir up the people by telling them that the Lutheran church was going to put them all back under slavery if they sent their children to our schools. Mm. They said that after a certain length of time, the Lutherans were going to send a black train through and take all the children away into some far country and reduce them to slavery. Hmm. These reports would cause great excitement. The enemies would go about and say that the Lutheran church would cut off the children's ears, brand an L. on them with a red hot iron as a mark of their denomination. Numbers of the poor ignorant people believed this. The dreamers went out and reported that they had been to hell and had seen Rosa Young there yoked down with all the people who had followed her into the Lutheran church. That Rosie Young was tearing up the churches, that she was leading the people to hell for money, that she ought to be Ku Klux skinned alive, burned at the stake. What could I say or do to all of this but remain silent? It went on until it finally shocked my nerves. Hmm. So that the persecution that she had to endure through all of this is incredible mm-hmm. and I can't fathom it. Rosa endured many trials and tribulations during her work. People would not speak to her. She often had very little money or food, if any. She would go days without eating much. She feared for her safety on more than one occasion and was accused of being a German spy because mm. German Lutheran oh, during World yeah, War One. Of, of course. She said, at another time, I was at a place where my church was accused of being a German church. It was during the World War There was great excitement, and a number of the members in fear denied, like Peter, that they belonged to the Lutheran Church or knew anything about it. When the news reached me, I gathered together all my religious books and carried them to those in authority. I took along the letter I had received from Booker T. Washington in order to prove to them that the Lutheran missionaries were no spies or intruders, and that I was the whole cause and and was to blame for it that they were in Alabama. The first day I did not succeed in getting a hearing, but I returned the second day and was successful. I presented Booker T. Washington's letter to them. They kept it, and thus I lost possession of that important letter." Hmm.
2: Mm.
1: Through all of this, Rosa stood firm in her faith and prayed continually for God's help. She relied on the support of influential whites and blacks to keep her mission alive, which they did. Pastor Bakke had to leave in 1920 due to health reasons, but Rosa kept on in the work of starting Lutheran schools for African-American children. Her legacy continued on for so many years. She influenced the founding of uh, the Alabama Lutheran Academy and College in Selma in 1922, which then became Concordia College, Alabama. She wanted to have a quality school to train black Lutheran pastors and school teachers for Alabama and beyond. She was matron from the opening of the school in 1922 until 1923 when she fell ill. During this time, she was struggling with her own health as a result of her rheumatism as a child and burning the candle at both ends for so many years in order to tell the gospel and to spread Lutheran education to as many places as she could. In 1923, she took her first vacation since
2: 1909 wow.
1: when she began teaching, which is incredible. Oh I don't gosh. think any of us would do that.
2: No, I wouldn't no. even do that.
1: Her dedication is... Incredible. She served as matron for several more periods. In between sickness and surgery, she had a weak heart, so she couldn't. Well, she couldn't do as much, but she really kept doing as much. She recovered enough by 1931 to make her first trip up north to share the mission work being done in Alabama. She visited St. Louis and Nebraska, um, and for our local St. Louis people, there are several places around here that she visited. And when Mm -hmm. I was reading the book, I was getting all giddy because I've also been to those places, and it's just so cool. She later made a trip to Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois, and it was just a crazy amount of places that she would go and lecture about um, all of the wonderful things being done in Lutheran education in Alabama. She made a third trip up north to have infected teeth extracted, probably not as fun of a trip, during which she also had a heart attack. Through all of this, she prayed to do more work in Alabama, which she did. Tirelessly, she kept going setting up more schools, teaching more youth, and suffering even more health difficulties and another heart attack. But she kept going. She praises God in her book for the pure gospel teaching that the Lutheran Church brought to the Black Belt of Alabama and how this gospel transformed the lives of so many people, who were lost in their sinful condition. Eventually, during the civil rights era in the mid-1960s, all of these synodical conference churches in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana integrated into the all-white Southern district of the LCMS. In 1961, she was honored by the LCMS with an honorary doctorate from Concordia Theological Seminary. So she is now Dr. Rosie Young, and I think that is highly Mm -hmm. well-reserved, well-deserved too many words. When she died on June 30th, 1971, she was buried near Christ Lutheran Church in Rosebud. And you can still go visit that. They still have celebrations there. I kind of want to go visit now and see all of these things that that she had a hand in. Yeah. Her legacy lives on today in the innumerable pastors and teachers who benefited from her wanting to serve the people of Alabama and spread the gospel of Jesus to anyone she could tell, and I have to say, thanks be to God for her legacy. Amen.
2: Rosa Young, everybody, mm-hmm. she is Amen. an incredible wow. person. Oh my gosh, you know, we're all we're all special. We're all created in the image of God, but I, just there are just people that you read about in history that their determination and their ethic is unmatched and because of her desire to educate black youth and to spread the gospel in her community I don't think I can put it into words like I am just so thankful for her example and I'm I'm thankful that that God put her on this planet and put her in at such a time that she was able to Grow what she had already started to do in Alabama, and that it could become sort of this this mission for the gospel as well. Like this is this is such a fantastic story.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what she was able to accomplish would have been extraordinary even under favorable conditions. Right. Yeah, but right. then you have about the most unfavorable conditions that you can imagine being a black woman in Jim Crow South mm-hmm. working with German Lutherans <laughs> in World War I. <laughs> I mean, right. the cards were so stacked against so stacked. her. And, yeah. and yet she kept going. This story is one that fills me with so much inspiration, but also it makes me profoundly uncomfortable mm-hmm. because we can't tell this story without unearthing some things that we as a church can feel very uncomfortable about. Right. Like the yeah. fact that that the Southern churches weren't integrated until the 1960s. That's Mm -hmm. really recent. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. too recent. Yep. Yeah. Um, And that we are still, we can pretend that all this stuff happened in the past, but no racism still exists Mm -hmm. and it still is an impediment to the gospel wherever it exists. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Um,
2: let's, let's be honest too. Like we're not the most diverse group of Christians on the planet. It might come as a shock to even lifelong Lutherans that Rosa J Young was this just amazing woman of God who did these great things in the south for Lutheran schools but it, it it's a story that regardless of regardless of what we have to uncover regardless of the things that we have to wrestle with as Lutherans even today this is a story that needs to continue to be told mm-hmm. for years to come
1: yeah and I also want to point out that the LCMS, even to this day, our standard of education is, mm-hmm. I think, bar none. I mm-hmm. mean, 1880s mm-hmm. and 1890s, we were we were already planting parochial schools anywhere that we could find people who would want a parochial school, and that standard of education is so high uh, because we value education and we value teaching children not only just regular knowledge, uh, but teaching children God's word and hymns and the catechism at such a young age because that is such a foundation for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I think that's great.
0: Oh, what a woman. Yeah. yeah. In listening to this, I recently finished reading the this book, a nonfiction book uh, called The Warmth of Other Suns mm-hmm. that tracks the period very much where Rosa was actively working mm. in establishing the school, It's it sort of tracks the period from 1915 to the 1970s. Mm. It's focused on the African-Americans in multiple places. But Alabama is one of the places. And so as you were telling this story, it was so interesting to have things overlay with that. Mm. And as I don't remember which one of you was saying, like, there are things that that make us uncomfortable, and I think we have a tendency to want to avoid those. I don't know, or declare that well, that was before our time, so it's not our fault, hmm. uh, or <laughs> you know what I mean. Like it's <laughs> yeah, it's we aren't it's a, we aren't responsible for it. Not and, my problem. Right, right. It it was before our time, but. I I don't know. I think it's I I don't think we should be looking to to ourselves and our circumstances for absolution there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. When when we're feeling this and we see this and we know it was wrong and we can see that the ripple effect from this is still is still active today. You know, the the impact that slavery and then our continued issues with trying to figure out how to actually live in a country (laughs) with people from multiple cultures and and try to actually live together the implications are still being seen and felt today and so when we see this and we're uncomfortable i think we have the tendency to try and look for ways you guys weren't saying this but i'm just commenting on our our tendency as a a culture. We don't want to be at fault, right? And so mm-hmm, we right. try to look for things to excuse ourselves mm-hmm. from it. And instead, we should. We know this as Lutherans. We should instead be going and confessing and be like, "I yep. confess that I have, I have done these things, and I am, I am at fault. It's my own fault, my own mo- most grievous fault." Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. we go to the one who can actually absolve us, because there's. There is no other hope. And then and then it's like, okay, now how do I actually love my neighbor right, um, right. that God has placed in my life? And how do I engage in these things that do make me uncomfortable? And looking
2: back, how do we amend? How do we amend, yeah. do we amend yeah. What, yeah. what our quote unquote forefathers did?
3: I think Rosa offers us a, a solution. And I'm so glad that mm. even though this story makes us uncomfortable, we keep telling it yep. because yeah. That is part of the answer is mm-hmm. to remember and give thanks for saints like Rosa Jay. And wade through um, it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I think she mentions this over and over again, the gospel, mm-hmm. the purity of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That was her identity. That became who she was. That was why she could show love to German Lutherans during world war one, yeah. who were being thought of as like these nasty, you know, spies. Yeah. Um, Kids ears off and she stuck. said, <laughs> she said, I'm, Uh, you know, a student of the gospel. You're a student of the gospel. And that's the thing that transcends all these other things. Mm -hmm. And I think she sort of sets the example there for how to
1: look at people. Yeah. Um, We, we are the body of Christ and therefore we work together and we love each other. That's right. And that's it. I think we need story. It's such a good story. Um, So I encourage all of you listening. I did not tell anywhere close to all of her story, even though It's been a while. Uh, (laughs) So please go to lcms.org slash thefirstrosa, watch the documentary, follow the links, look through all of her story, read her book. Uh, You can get Light in the Dark Belt from CPH, read her story, and then tell other people about her story, because it's so good. And then maybe we'll have a collective field trip to Alabama to go see things. I'm in, because I think that would be cool. Beep, beep, get in, everyone. Yeah. Uh, join in this discussion too if you have insights, if you have uh, your own stories of, of Lutheran education or of wonderful women in uh, Lutheranism or in Christianity that, that you uh, look up to, that you love their stories. Share them. We love to hear them. Uh, we will have more story times with Sarah down the road too. So if you don't feel like doing the research, you just want to know about someone, you can make me do the research. She'll do it for you. That's fine. So join our, join our group, The Lutheran Ladies' Lounge on Facebook. Find the rest of our episodes at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on your podcast app. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at KFUO.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our community on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. Who's going next? Should I go next? You want to go next? Do it. Give us a story.